Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, March 24th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. We realized in the planning of this episode that we have not had STAT's Helen Branswell on in 2022, so we're going to rectify that. She will join us to help make sense of this strange phase of the pandemic. Before that, we have a huge chatty Cathy on all the latest happenings in the life sciences this week. But before that, a quick word from our sponsor. We're excited to announce a new annual initiative, the Stannis List. The Stannis List is the most consequential accounting of leaders in health medicine, and science. Aided by a select panel of judges, STAT surveyed sectors such as biotechnology and diagnostics, as well as broader arenas like education and policy to identify the most influential trailblazers, well-known figures, and unheralded heroes who are shaping our life science landscape. To see the list and to meet this year's 46 honorees, visit us at statnews.com slash status list. That's statnews.com forward slash status list. S-T-A-T-U-S-L-I-S-T. As folks know, we record this podcast on Thursday morning. And also this morning, Moderna is having a vaccine day. Meg, you were listening in. Uh, what are they saying? Yeah, so they're going through you know, all of their different... Uh, programs that they have with mRNA vaccines from, of course, the COVID vaccine to other respiratory virus vaccines for RSV and flu, which is, of of course, big interest. They also announced this week leading up to the meeting that they were going to develop a vaccine against the four human endemic coronaviruses. So basically like a a vaccine against the common cold, which they argue um, causes a lot of uh, it problems for vulnerable people around the world. Um, ultimately, their goal is to sort of combine all of these respiratory virus vaccines into one shot um, that uh, folks might get every year. And um, we talked with Stefan Bonsell, the CEO of Moderna on CNBC this morning. Um, he noted, you know, maybe a healthy 25-year-old is not going to be somebody who gets this pan, you know, respiratory virus vaccine every year. But for more vulnerable people or people who really just don't like getting sick, um, this is the option that they're trying to provide. They also have uh, vaccines for other diseases. They're going through their latent virus vaccines, like for CMV and Epstein-Barr. And I think Epstein-Barr has gotten a lot more interesting. um, Well, it's already interesting, but recently, because there have been studies suggesting it's implicated in multiple sclerosis. uh, And if you could vaccinate against it, you know, could that cut down on the incidence of MS? Um, So that could be pretty interesting. Um, But guys, I was curious to get your take on A, the, you know, Moderna announcements um, leading up to today and today, but also an issue that's garnered a lot of attention, at least on CNBC, uh, which it has throughout the whole pandemic, which is Stefan Bunsell's stock sales. And I know you guys did a lot of reporting (laughs) on Moderna executive stock sales through the pandemic, not just Bonsell. Um, but, you know, we asked him this morning about the $400 million worth of stock that he's sold since the beginning of the pandemic. And here's how he addressed it. So uh, if you look at the, the, the stake up in the company, it has actually not decreased despite those sales because 
uh, you know, I, I bought a lot of stock. I'm actually the only investor in the world who bought stock at every private round before the IPO with cash. And I also my stock option as an employee, as a CEO of a company. Actually, I have never sold to this day a single stock option. I've never. Existed. But my question to you guys is, you know, I don't pay as close attention, obviously, to other industries, and you guys probably don't either. But I do wonder. Is there a different standard or a potentially higher standard for healthcare CEOs in terms of stock sales and the just how it looks? Um, you know, when you're trying to sell products that are integral to people's health, uh, when you're so obviously profiting so mightily from it. Um, you know, I looked up to see like, does Mark Zuckerberg sell stock? And like last year, he sold like four point six billion dollars worth of shares. He gave you know four point one billion of that to his foundation, but that's five hundred million dollars that he also took, which is more than. Bonsell, you know, sold last year since the pandemic began. So I don't know. What do you guys think about this? It's a good point. I mean, it's tempting to take a sort of like moralizing um, lens to it. But I think in other industries and in in biotech, what tends to attract attention is when companies whose stock prices are volatile have executives who sell a lot of stock. And that happens to apply to Moderna over the past two years, in addition to its role um, in developing a COVID-19 vaccine. But the thing with Stefan or or with anyone uh, where you see this kind of large number of dollars that are, that are gained from selling stock is then you're kind of curious, well, okay, well, how much of a stake in the company do they hold? And Boncel has maintained a roughly like 7 to 9% stake in Moderna for years now. Um, so my concern, I guess, like as, as an American citizen or, or person who wants like the markets to function healthily, I, I'm not terribly like galled by him cashing out a little bit. That's sort of how his compensation works. It's meant to keep him at the company, the the fact that they give him stock that he can later sell. My concern would be if I were a Moderna shareholder, I would be concerned as to why are we giving our executives so much stock in the company such that they can make $400 million in cash and still retain a roughly 9% share of the firm. I feel like in the sort of corporate governance world, more so than just like people on the street, that's where I think the alarm might come from. And I agree with Damien pretty much. And I would also just say with, remember with Moderna, a lot of the stuff around executive compensation and even the pricing of their vaccines and the amount of money, the revenue that they've generated from COVID vaccine sales is all sort of intertwined with the government participation and contribution to the development of COVID vaccines. Uh, you know, and whether or not there's always that argument of, of you know, whether or not uh, the government deserves uh, a better price or deserves, you know, there should be some sort of like remuneration to the government because of what government scientists did to help develop the vaccine. So there's always that angle here. And you might get that angle. You, you certainly sort of get that angle all, often when you talk about drug pricing, right? Uh, you know, if if the NIH did some early research on something that led to a drug, does the government deserve a break in price. And so I think that's why you get these kinds of conversations and debates with healthcare executives. That makes sense. And I mean, from that point of view, maybe healthcare executives are and should be held to a higher or different standard than other industries. This is, of course, you know, not even examining the question of, you know, 
should these people get so rich anyway? But that is a completely other discussion for a completely other podcast. Um, also in pandemic, you know, COVID-related news this week, there was a new biotech founded called Arium Therapeutics uh, from some familiar faces. John Moraganore, the former CEO of Alnylam, is involved as a board member uh, founded by uh, Omega Funds and Otellus Dampaccia, the, the venture capitalist, and uh, bringing in the CEO, um, Rajiv Venkaya, who was the head of Takeda's vaccines business and also uh, involved in writing the first pandemic plan in the George W. Bush administration. Uh, this was written about in Michael Lewis's COVID book, The Premonition. Um, it's really interesting, guys. I mean, they want to tackle COVID. We're three years into this pandemic and they're developing new um, antibody drugs they say will be better uh, for prevention in the um, for folks who are immunocompromised. They also want to focus on future variants, but also future pandemic threats. And I guess the question is, is this something that Wall Street is going to buy into. Um, you know, we have sort of a blueprint for it in Veer Biotechnology, which was founded before the pandemic to focus on viruses. And, you know, they've been really successful in terms of developing a successful antibody drug for COVID, but they're not super well loved on Wall Street. It's interesting, yeah, because on the one hand, this news is sort of disconcerting because a bunch of smart people who get fired if they don't make money have put their money into a company that is basically betting on this pandemic continuing for for quite some time such that there'll be a need for these follow-on antibody treatments for SARS-CoV-2. Um, but likewise, it does seem wise to invest in future pandemics considering how this one caught the world by surprise. And I'm curious, you know, Meg, to your point about what the investor appetite would be for you know, a company that is devoted to, in the long term, developing drugs that we all hope we will never need. Well, the other and the other angle here is, I, you know, I hate to inject politics into this podcast, but, you know, we've seen obviously uh, a reluctance uh, in certain factions of the government to continue to fund COVID related activities. Uh, I guess the feeling is, you know, COVID should just go away and we don't need to fund it. So I get, the, you know, w the question becomes with future, you know, if we look years ahead to the development of new therapeutics for COVID, whether they be antibodies or antivirals or whatever, like, like who's going to pay for them? Is the government going to, who's the customer for these? Is the government going to buy these? Uh, is this going to be just like another drug that, you know, maybe a doctor would prescribe and your insurance company would have to pay for it? And, and if that's the case, how much are these going to cost? Because right now, right, we get, we get COVID drugs for free. Uh, uh, that's, I think that's a thorny issue and, and it'll be interesting to see where that, how that all plays out. Yeah. I mean, just to wrap up this chat, I mean, I, guess you have to be happy that smart people are still thinking about this, even if there are questions about how much government attention and support will be paid to it, because that was part of the issue going into all of this. Like, we didn't prepare, even though we knew something like this could be coming. I mean, one company isn't going to do it, but uh, you have to hope that attention doesn't just leave completely. Um, switching topics uh, to other things that we hate to inject into the podcast, uh, a Biogen connection. Uh, there was news um, that Al Sandrock, the former research chief at Biogen, whose um, de surprising departure you guys broke, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago, uh, now has taken on a CEO role at a new company. Adam, tell us about it. Do you guys think that Al Sandrock hate listens to this podcast? <laughs> no. I think he does. Okay. So Al, if you're listening... We're talking about you. Um, yes, Meg. Uh, Al Sandrock, as you said, the former top scientist of Biogen, forced out by his CEO at the time over all the Adjuhelm stuff, and we don't have to go back into that. Yeah, he has taken a new job as CEO of 
Voyager Therapeutics. Uh, Voyager has been around for a while. They developed gene therapies. They, they ran into some trouble with kind of this first slate of gene therapies that they were trying to develop. So they've kind of pivoted to a new gene therapy delivery technology that they have. It's, it's early stage. It, it's supposed to basically be able to deliver gene therapy more effectively and potentially safer than some of the current um, technologies that are out there. And, you know, Al, um, Al joined the board of Voyager actually like soon after he left Biogen. Uh, and now he has become the CEO. So it's kind of a career reset for Al. And, and also it's a, it's a chance for, uh, to Voyager to, you know, kind of just, to, I guess, just sort of continue this, uh, this rebound, this sort of reinvention of the company. It's also interesting in that, or it will be interesting, I suppose, in that since Al's departure, just the way it timed out with Biogen, he had no public facing farewell or address that uh, he left between corporate earnings calls, which he used to be a fixture on, um, and then Biogen just simply moved on. And so being the CEO of a publicly traded company in Voyager, we will see the return of uh, of Al, the uh, conference call uh, presence, which will be interesting in that he also hasn't really commented publicly on why he left Biogen or anything about that. I don't imagine that'll be a subject of his first address at his new company, but still, we'll hear his voice for the first time in a while. Meg, maybe at JPM 23, you could get an interview with Al Sanrock, CEO of Voyager Therapeutics. I will put in a call and not mention you guys. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably wise. <laughs> um, on to other interesting topics that are neither Biogen nor COVID. Um, next week, there is a big FDA meeting, and it is tangentially related to Biogen because it is the same a committee of outside advisors as the ones who uh, reviewed Adjuhelm. But of course, a number of those folks left over the Adjuhelm decision. Um, Damien, can you tell us about this Amelix event? That's right. So the FDA's uh, external advisors in neurology will convene once more or what's left of them or whoever's replaced the ones who've left to talk about a new treatment for ALS from a small company called Amelix. And what's interesting about this is, you know, this is a company, this is their only drug. They basically exist to develop it. And initially, they had a single trial that showed a statistically significant, albeit relatively modest, but benefit to patients with ALS, which, you know, in the ALS community and families affected by this disease is, you know, more than enough reason for excitement. But the FDA initially told them that they needed more evidence before they could seek approval for this product. And then, according to Amelix, the FDA changed its mind and invited the company to submit those data for approval. Now, you know, the FDA, as we've talked about a lot, doesn't publicly comment on these sorts of things. So we have only the company's word to go off of. But in that time, Amelix has gone public. It's valued at more than $1 billion. And so basically, we're heading into this public meeting where the hopes and the passions of people affected by ALS, will we will hear them and, and we're familiar with them and they are pushing for this drug to win approval. The, you know, this is maybe the least important aspect, but the valuation of this small company and, and the livelihoods, when I mean not livelihoods, the success of its many investors. And then furthermore, we have kind of the cloud of Adjuhelm hanging over this panel and, you know, the recent history of FDA neurology rulings being a little bit stained, I think, in the public mind. And that's all leading up to this meeting, which, of course, is all leading up to the FDA's final decision on whether to approve this drug, which is expected this summer. I guess my question is, after what happened with Adjuhelm, like, why do the FDA meetings in this therapeutic area matter? Like, I, I mean, it's really interesting to hear their thoughts, but like the Adjuhelm 
advisory committee voted almost unanimously against approval of that drug and the FDA approved it anyway, leading to, you know, all of this other stuff that you guys have written about and won awards for writing about. So does it matter what they vote? I, I, I don't know. It's obviously like another test. That's a great question, Megan. It's part of the drama. I, you know, I will be I will be covering this uh, FDA advisory meeting next week, uh, watching it all day. And, and of course, as a reporter who loves drama and conflict and because it makes for good stories and good and lots of readers, I hope that there is fireworks. Uh, I don't know if there will be, but uh, yeah, you're right. You know, there, I mean, I would have to say that there is a little bit probably less conflict and drama with this because the data are pretty clear that what this drug does, I think the debate will be whether or not this one single positive clinical trial is enough. Is that enough evidence to support the approval of this drug or do they need to collect more? Like, do they need to do another study, which they were already actually doing another study? I mean, they just they want to they want to get the drug approved before the outcome of that study is reads out. So, you know, whereas obviously with Adjuhelm, you know, there was failed trials and re, re, redoing analyses and all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, so th- we don't really have that kind of um, uh, clinical data controversy with this Amelix drug, but still like that, like the Adjuhelm will be like this pink elephant, like sitting there in the room and we'll, it'll be interesting to see sort of like what happens. And as, uh, as you mentioned, and as Damien mentioned, this is the same group led, you know, that, that uh, reviewed uh, Adjuhelm and, you know, within the FDA, this is, this is Billy Dunn's uh, division within the FDA, Billy Dunn being the top neuroscience guy at the FDA. So again, we get to see Billy Dunn, you know, for the first time really since the whole Adjuhelm thing. So we realized this week that somehow it's the end of March and we have not yet had Helen Branswell on the podcast in the year 2022 and decided we needed to fix that immediately. Helen, of course, is Stats senior writer covering infectious diseases and global health and has joined us many, many times throughout the pandemic to help us make sense of things. And with new vaccine data, concerns over a more contagious variant and the general state of the world, it felt like a good time to check in again. Helen, welcome back to The Read Out Loud. I'm happy to be here. So, Helen, help us understand where we are right now uh, with the state of the pandemic in the U.S. So cases nationally have come way, way down since the peak of Omicron, though they are still higher than the trough of last summer. Uh, Many people feel or at least felt with the new CDC guidance that they're kind of done with the pandemic for all intents and purposes in terms of not needing masks indoors, you know, returning to work in bigger numbers. How do you look at things? Well, you know, obviously... (laughs) Numbers are way, way down, but I was just looking at like the seven day rolling average is I think 31,000 cases in the country. That's a lot lower than it is and a kind of nice to see. But at the same time, we have to be aware that testing numbers in this country are not going to be terribly accurate going forward because, you know, many of the people who test positive for COVID may be doing so in their own kitchens and, um, you know, their test results are never going to be incorporated into the national figures. So um, the numbers are way, way down, but, you know, I don't think we have a great sense now of, of how far down they are. Um, but there are other indicators that are, you know, things like good. I, I get an email every day from the Boston Globe that tells me, 
the case counts and deaths in Massachusetts. And yesterday there was one death reported in Massachusetts. And I cannot tell you how long it's been since I've seen a number that low. So, you know, that is a good sign. Um, I'm looking right now at the CDC's um, map that sort of tells people where things stand in their counties, the one that you know, they're supposed to use to, to know if it's time to start putting on masks again or whatever. And most of the map is green, although to be fair, it's going to be updated tonight. So, you know, that may change. There are a few spots in the country where, um, that are in orange. So there are places where activity seems to be high. And I don't know if that's picking up or, you know, that's residual high activity, but something to keep an eye on. Um, and another thing to keep an eye on, of course, is the fact that Europe is just lit right now. Um, there's just so much spread there. Uh, and people, of course, are wondering, as we've seen many times in the past, you know, if what's happening in Europe is going to be happening here, you know, in another few weeks. So given everything you just said, Helen, you know, and also uh, one of my favorite things to look at is is wastewater surveillance. And that's also shown, shown that's also shown some increases in viral levels recently. So I wonder just how worried are you um, and the experts that you talk to about all of this? I guess I would say that I'm watchful. I, I, I don't know that I would say I'm worried. Um, you know, the, the reality is we're learning to live with this virus. We're going to have to live with this virus. And, um, you know, as we've talked about in the past, we, most of us have, you know, some degree of immunity to the virus, either through um, two or three shots of vaccine or prior infection or both. Um, so, you know, just from that point of view, we're all in a much better place than we were earlier in the pandemic. I have not expected that this would, uh, you know, that the arrival of the Omicron wave indicated sort of the end of the pandemic and things would sort of, the, the curve would come down and uh, we wouldn't have any activity until next winter where we'd have sort of a a surge of flu-like act, you know, a flu-like surge of activity. I think it's likely that the next couple of years are going to be a little bit bumpy. That you know there will be some surges and some even potentially times when we'll be urged to to take additional precautions again. Although I, it's hard to imagine there's not much of a political appetite for that kind of thing right now. I, I think we're we are better equipped to handle this. And I think mentally people are starting to be at the point where they, or have been for a while, at the point where they want to take some risks, where they understand that, um, you know, going to the movies and eating popcorn might entail risk of catching COVID, but that's something that they're willing to live with. This week also brought news from Moderna on their COVID-19 vaccine and data from children ages six months to just under six years old. And while the study met its main goal and Moderna plans to proceed with regulatory filings here and abroad, it's not a totally straightforward picture. What was your reaction to the results we saw? My reaction was, why do you have to send these things to me at like 10 o'clock at night? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, 
although to be fair, they, they offered it under embargo a little bit earlier in the evening, but I was out and I didn't see the, the, the email. So yeah, that was, those results were interesting. They did meet their primary endpoint, which was immunogenicity. So what they were trying to show was that the vaccine induced in kids six to 23 months and kids two years to six years, the same kinds of um, antibody responses as are seen in adults 18 to 25. Um, in both cases, they, they showed that the responses were similar to the responses seen in the adults. And so, you know, based on that, you would expect that the FDA might be inclined to um, authorize this vaccine for little kids. You'll recall that Pfizer, when it tested in those age groups, did not see the same levels of antibodies in kids two to five as they did in adults. Um, so Moderna, you know, had more success. Obviously, they're using a much bigger dose than Pfizer uses, and that may have something to do with it. What was also interesting was the fact that um, they conducted their trial during, mainly during the Omicron wave. So they they had cases. They did not indicate how many cases they had, but they were able to calculate vaccine efficacy based on uh, the fact that they had enough cases to do so. And um, the vaccine efficacy wasn't great. You know, it was like almost 44% in the youngest kids and 37.5% uh, in the um, kids aged two to six. On the face of it, you know, that wouldn't be good enough to, to get it, uh, EUA from the, um, from the FDA. They had told manufacturers from the very start they wanted vaccines that were at least 50% effective. But, um, those numbers are kind of similar to what two doses of the Moderna vaccine do against Omicron. And in, uh, you know, some of the people we spoke to for our story said, you know, it's important to keep in context what's happening in adults with Omicron and two doses of vaccine. Two doses of the mRNA vaccines are not sufficient to protect, you know, well against Omicron. And so it's not a surprise that two doses in kids aren't either. Um, Moderna says it's test going to test a booster in the the littlest kids and see what happens with that. Um, you know, and another one of one of the people we spoke to yesterday, or a couple of the people we spoke to yesterday, thought that it may turn out that this vaccine will be a three-dose vaccine in little children. Um, you know, as it seems like the Pfizer vaccine will be two. Uh, it's going to be just interesting to see over the, you know, how quickly they are able to complete their filing and FDA um, and, you know, analyzes their data and then how soon there will be an advisory committee called to deal with this application and whether, you know, FDA is going to deal with both the Pfizer and Moderna applications, at, you know, in, in the same um, advisory committee or, you know, back-to-back -back advisory committees. Um, I think most parents are reluctant to use these vaccines in kids, but there is a very vocal minority of parents who are really, really eager 
to vaccinate their kids and um, the FDA will be under pressure from them to move on this quickly. Yeah, I have to say as a parent of a three-year-old, I, I'm i really looking forward to the Verpack. I assume they're going to have an, a Vaccines Advisory Committee meeting on this because I want to hear what these experts say about these data. Um, I think you make such a good point that the 44% efficacy does not look great, but at the same time, in this era of Omicron, you know, as Dr. Fauci pointed out at the White House COVID briefing this week, that's basically what all the vaccines are doing. Um, of course, there are three doses available for um, adults and potentially a fourth dose uh, at some point soon. Um, meanwhile, in the rest of the world of COVID vaccines, Helen, you wrote a great story this week about how the market for these vaccines is starting to get really crowded just, of course, as demand starts to wane. So what's happening with that dynamic? Well, you know, as we all know, everybody and their brother tried to make a COVID vaccine and that's great. The world needed people to be, you know, trying this as, as Dr. Fauci and others involved in pandemic, you know, response always talk about you need multiple shots on goal. Well, the, there were a lot of shots um, on goal for the COVID vaccines. Um, and, you know, Fortunately, we had a lot of successes. It's really staggering that there have been so many authorized and approved vaccines just, you know, a little over two years into the, into the pandemic. It's really amazing. But there's still a lot of companies working on developing um, vaccines, first-generation vaccines, vaccines that aren't different from the ones that are on, in use already. And it's just increasingly hard to see how any of them are going to find a place in the market. Um, or even, you know, we, we've been waiting a long time for the recombinant protein vaccines, the Novavax and the Sanofi vaccine that they're making with uh, GSK's adjuvant. You know, people have had high hopes for those vaccines and they've been slower to come through the system, but they may soon be, you know, authorized by the FDA but they're coming through at a time when, in a lot of places, people who want to be vaccinated have been vaccinated and people who haven't been vaccinated just don't want to be vaccinated. Um, that's in the developed world. Obviously, in some lower income countries, there's still high percentages of people who aren't vaccinated. But at this point, it's not typically because of a shortage of vaccine. It's because it's just difficult to vaccinate large numbers of people and, uh, you know, you need to have syringes, you need to have cold chain, you need to have healthcare workers who can administer vaccines. And that's part of the delay in some parts of the world. So sort of knowing where new vaccines are going to, you know, be able to make a play, it's, it's just the more you look at it, the harder it is to see much opportunity at this point for vaccines that are, you know, based on the Wuhan strain, so the original strain vaccines that are administered through injection in arms, like the world probably has enough of those right now. So in your story, uh, you quoted the University of Minnesota's uh, Michael Osterholm saying that none of the vaccines on the horizon have the characteristics that we actually need for the future. So what would one of those vaccines actually look like? Well, I mean, one of the disappointments about the vaccines that we have is that they don't block transmission and they don't block all infection for very long. You know, when you'll remember when the 
the Pfizer and then the Moderna vaccines were ported out in um, in November of 2020. They reported that they were 95 and 94 uh, percent protective against all infection, which was just staggering. But you know, we've come to learn that protection wanes really quickly. They still are very good about keeping people from getting seriously ill, but they can't seem to block all infection and none of the vaccines do. And so as a consequence of that, you know, vaccinated people are catching COVID. Mostly they're, you know, experiencing much milder disease than than unvaccinated people, but they're contributing to the spread of the vaccine. And ideally you'd want vaccines to really cut down on the amount of transmission that's happening. So if somebody could figure out a way to make a vaccine that could do that, it probably would involve intranasal um, administration. That would be something that the world could use, you know, vaccines that are more durable, vaccines that protect against, um, protect more broadly against, uh, you know, SARS-2 so that you wouldn't have to worry about variants emerging that that could evade the immunity those kinds of tools are you know what we could those kinds of tools are the types of vaccines that we would hope to see come forward in second generation vaccines well helen thanks as always for joining us thanks for having me So before we sign off, we wanted to let you know about a couple of pretty cool biotechy events that are happening next week. Yeah, one of them is at CNBC. We're having our Healthy Returns Summit on March 30th on Wednesday. Uh, we're going to have a lot of big CEOs like uh, Joaquin Duato, the CEO of J&J, who just took over. Uh, Andrew Witte, Sir Andrew Witte, the CEO of United Health Group. Uh, Rosalind Brewer from Walgreens. Um, and Yvonne Greenstreet from El Nylum. So um, there's a lot more in the lineup. You can see at uh, cnbc.com slash healthy returns. Um, I'm looking forward to it, but I'm also looking forward to you guys' conference. That's right. So the following day, uh, on Thursday, March 31st, we will be having Stats Breakthrough Science Summit, where a bunch of stat reporters will be interviewing a bunch of very interesting people, including George Yankopoulos from Regeneron, Dean Lee from Merck, and a panel that I'm hosting, so I know I should know a fair amount about, featuring the heads of the biggest companies involved in CRISPR. Tickets to that event are still available both in person here in New York City and streaming online. You can go to statnews.com slash events. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and if you think healthcare CEOs should be held to a different standard when it comes to stock sales. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. See you next week.